The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I don't often get personal on the show, but I'm going to tell a personal story. Story which led me to ask, not at what price knowledge, but at what point knowledge? What's the point of knowledge? A couple days ago, 11 o'clock at night, I took the subway home and I was texting with my wife. I'm taking the subway home. She said, don't do it. My wife, Michelle, you may know her from such credits as COO of Peachfish Productions and chief tilapia handler of Peachfish Productions. But Michelle said, it's dangerous. And I said, it's fine. We can't let the evil doers win. She texted, it's not safe. What I wanted to text back was something like, well, while there have been, uh, there, there was a high profile shooting. And while some crimes are up, others aren't up that much when viewed in a different context. Not a good text to send, not the right uh, convincing tone to take, but I will just lay on you some of the statistics. This was from a New York Post headline of uh, two days prior to my taking the subway. NYC subway crime surging with robberies up 72% and assaults up 28%. Now robberies up 72%, that is up. Assaults up 28%. It's actually not up, and I'll tell you why. The entire New York Post, the headline, but the entire story didn't also mention that ridership is up 50 to 60% from last year. So if assaults only go up by 28%, they've really gone down in terms of each rider's chances of being assaulted on the subway. But I knew that. It was just that my audience at the time didn't feel that. They weren't in the emotional space to be receptive or open to that. And it doesn't feel like the subways are safe, especially at this point. We were six days from a gunman opening fire and wounding 10. And not only that, there have been a bunch of other high-profile assaults. They do get a lot of attention. It does seem worse than a year ago. It certainly is worse than three years ago, and also murders outside of the subway. Those are also demonstrably worse in New York City and my part of town than they were last year and three years ago. But it's also true that murders in the subway are down from three to two, but that's from this year to last. They dropped by one, but some of the murders have been high-profile, horrible women being pushed onto the train tracks. And if the gunman of last week had just aimed his gun a little higher, it would not be true. So it's a weird thing about knowledge and stats. There's often a lot of gray area there, but it's actually not the case that the subway is unsafe, taking as safe what the uh, baseline of the subway was, say, in 2019 or even in 2020. But knowing this information, me knowing this information, it did not help. It did not help in the moment. In fact, it was almost a curse. And an interesting thing is if I had a different interpretation of this information or simply didn't know this information um, was beset by misinformation and that misinformation aligned with my wife's misinformation, we at least could have agreed on a course of action. We wouldn't have had friction. Since I did take the subway home and she was nervous the whole time and not that happy with me, that did cause friction. And if I had taking a $50 Uber instead of taking the subway, I would have been a little resentful and that would have caused friction. It's only the misalignment. If two people are aligned with information or two entities are aligned with accurate information, they're good. But also if they're aligned with inaccurate misinformation, they'll at least get along pretty well, at least in the moment. 
And there's another fact, by the way, that doesn't fit in with the overall idea of the subway being unsafe, so I should take a car service home. Headline, Daily News Today, advocates demand action as NYC traffic deaths rise 44% so far in 2022. Nearly 60 people died in car crashes in New York City. So if the subway is quote-unquote unsafe, we need to take into account the safety of the proposed alternative, don't we? But really... This is not about me saying that the subway's safer than you think. Like I said, robberies are up. This is about me thinking about what knowledge gets us. What does knowledge really get us? And I just have come to think from this personal experience and so much of what I see in the news and of the news, knowledge, when it's not paired with emotional buy-in, is often worse than no knowledge at all. Knowledge that the January 6th committee has uncovered coordination between the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, it means nothing if your emotional attitude is, that's eh, not a big deal, that's a big kerfuffle, that's uh, much ado about nothing in terms of the foundations of democracy. I'll take another example. If you don't think immigration is a big problem, one you need to know much about, and if you don't really care, you might vaguely know there's something called Title 42 and something's going on about it, but you don't have the emotional buy-in on the issue, no amount of facts will matter to you. And by the way, there's a lot of facts. There's a lot of relevant information that's extremely newsworthy that can be conveyed about surge of crossings at the border and Title 42. It's not less newsworthy than other things you're reading about than, say, the French election. It's just that that Title 42 thing probably lacks emotional buy-in to you if you're a typical listener of this show. A fact can't undo your feelings. And a fact doesn't really go far unless the audience for that fact wants that fact to be true. So much of my professional life has been spent in the pursuit and examination of uncomfortable facts. I'm strangely compelled by uncomfortable facts, anything that challenges my worldview that's hard to fit in. But we have almost no use for facts that don't fit. So what I did in my situation was... I waited till I got home. I did not text the statistical information in the moment. I didn't talk to Michelle about it that night. She was waiting up for me. Wasn't really open to hearing statistics. I also refrained from talking about it this morning as we were working or having breakfast or discussing important issues of cat medicine. None of that seemed the opportune time. What I did was I waited for the exact right moment. And I recommend that you do this too with your partner if you have a dispute on facts. And which is to do this. Slip it into the opening segment of your podcast. Don't tell them you're going to do it. See if them hearing a well-produced, well-edited-for-clarity by Joel and Corey podcast does anything to advance the argument. It might. It might not. I will report back to you the results. If it works, please expect a lot more just content on such questions as what's more annoying, getting to your mother-in-law's house 20 minutes late or your mother-in-law getting to your house 20 minutes early. On the show today, I spiel about the libs of TikTok and the mugwumps of the 20th century. how that happened? But first, 420, you know what that means. I'd like to thank the stoners for giving us something else to concentrate on today than Hitler's birthday. Though, it may be hard to concentrate at all with all this legal weed. You know, there are only six states where marijuana remains illegal. In some states, it's simply game on. In some, it's for medicinal use only. But most of those states don't define medicinal use too stringently. And then we come to Oklahoma. It is perhaps the most interesting example of a marijuana if not success story, at least 
a fascinating free-for-all. Up next is Paul Demko. He's the cannabis editor at Politico, and he joins me to talk about the state they call Oklahoma. about the states and marijuana legalization, maybe you think about Colorado, one of the earliest, maybe you think about California, certainly the biggest. You might not think about Oklahoma unless you've been concentrating. And I could recommend a strain of Harlequin, which is a sativa that helps with concentration. Oklahoma has been a marijuana legalization success story, but not an unmitigated one. And the story of why marijuana works so well in Oklahoma is also the story to some extent of why it doesn't work so well in other states. Chronicling this is Paul Demko. He is the cannabis editor for Politico. And when he pitched me on the story, I said, whenever someone is the cannabis editor for Politico, just say yes. An interesting conversation will ensue. Hello, Paul. Thanks for joining me on The Gist. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So give me the background of why Oklahoma, a very conservative, we could say very red, that's actually literally true given what they wear on uh, Saturdays, but a very conservative, very anti-drug state. How did they become a marijuana pioneer? Well, yeah, Oklahoma has long, um, you know, vied with Louisiana to to hold the dubious distinction of locking up more of its citizens than any other state. Um, but you've had a, a group of marijuana legalization advocates that, starting way back in 2012, started working to try to get uh, medical marijuana legalization on the ballot, and they finally uh, succeeded um, in 20 in 2018, and uh, the referendum passed. Um, with pretty overwhelming support and um, created this marijuana market where there were just very few rules in terms of uh, what businesses can do and how they can operate and what municipalities can do to, to prevent them from operating. So why did it pass is a question. Some states, they will emphasize the disproportionate racial makeup of those who are arrested for a marijuana, and this is a, a claim to equity. Almost all states will talk about how it will benefit their tax coffers. But the argument to pass marijuana legalization in Oklahoma, I, from what I gleaned from your reporting, played out a lot differently than it did in a place like New York. Yeah, I think the, the the arguments in favor of legalization in Oklahoma are much more of a libertarian um, uh, bent and much more along the lines of, of freedom um, and allowing people to, you know, do it like do what they like in the privacy of their own homes. Um, whereas when you look at the, the, the debate in places like Illinois and New York, it's much more about about racial justice and about the war on drugs and how that is disproportionately impacted, particularly black people and uh, doing something to redress those harms. In Oklahoma, I mean, that's an element of it for sure. You hear some about that, but it's much more about, you know, uh, freedom and, and, and getting the government off your back. So the stats on Oklahoma, 9,000 licensed marijuana businesses, 2,000 dispensaries, 6,000 grow operations. Compare it to Colorado, like I said, the earliest state that got into marijuana, recreational marijuana legalization, and it's uh, 
Colorado is 50% more people, but half as many licensed dispensaries. So just on the economics, all those dispensaries can't possibly survive in a state with 4 million people, can it? There's no way. Um, the, the economics just don't work. I mean, you have a little town like Ardmore down by the Texas border with, uh, you know, somewhere around 25,000 people. And I think there's 36 licensed weed shops. <laughs> like It's just preposterous. Um, but two things to think about. One is just because um, you have a business license doesn't mean you're necessarily operational. One of the things about Oklahoma is it only costs $2,500 to get a business license and there's no limits on them. So, you know, some guy living in his mom's basement can probably come up with $2,500 to get a get a license to do business. That doesn't mean he can run a, a viable business that's economically sustainable. So some of those 12,000, roughly 12,000 businesses aren't operational. And then, yes, I think there's absolutely going to be a shakeout, um, certainly in the in the coming years, but probably in the coming months. You've already seen the price of weed go down pretty dramatically in Oklahoma in a way that's going to make it really hard to um, be uh, sustainable. And it is early, but you were down there and the photos in your piece were wonderful. I mean, there were some places, there were some businesses like uh, the Hamiltons where, you know, if they weren't selling marijuana, if they were selling handcrafted soap, you could see that being a successful business. Just looking at the vibe of the place, if they were, you know, um, uh, give, giving out uh, therapeutic massages, you could see a line around the block. It just looked lovely. Uh, I'm not a marijuana partaker, but just in terms of uh, a business, it looked, and a bunch of these looked like they really were legitimate and had a chance at being uh, uh, sustained for a long time and having legs. Yeah, I mean, the owner of that shop is, a, you know, a mother with with young kids. It's called Hamilton Bud and Bloom. It's in Broken Arrow outside of Tulsa. And uh, she was really funny. She didn't really want to talk to me at first. Um, she was kind of she wanted her store manager to do be the kind of the face of the company. But I kept kind of sidling up to her and chatting with her. And she just came in, come, coming out with these hilarious little insights about the business. Like, oh, yeah, we always get a little bit of a rush when church lets out on Sunday morning um, and whatnot. So um um, thoroughly enjoyed that. And shout out quickly to our photographer, Misty Kessler, who I was with on that uh, assignment. So it does seem very important to me that Oklahoma's marijuana legalization was born of a libertarian impulse because the libertarian impulse did inform how much of how, how the state set up its program. And if you compare it to the amount of bureaucracy and number of hurdles in other states, maybe it's just very specific to a commodity that was once illegal. But I was at least convinced that if you look at the data now, the fewer rules, the fewer restrictions, the more of just let the market decide, the more likely you will have a successful marijuana business in your state. Uh, that's what the Oklahomans would say. How much do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's encountered its own problems. Um, because, I mean, one of the factors in addition to libertarianism is that everybody in state government was opposed to this. Like literally there was nobody in any kind of a f official role who was in favor of this legalization referendum. So after it passed, the state government, the state lawmakers, state officials didn't do anything. They kind of put their heads in the sand and didn't pass any legislation to create a safe, regulated market. So you had this situation where it was the Wild West. And now we're here almost four years later, three and a half years later, and you still don't have what's called a seed to sale tracking system in Oklahoma, which pretty much every other state in the country has. And why do you have that? So that 
you know where product is, who's selling it, who's growing it, who's buying it. And if there are problems, you know, just like with, you know, a salmonella outbreak, you can alert people that, you know, they bought some bad weed and they might not want to smoke it or they might want to return it to the store or whatnot. The other big problem they've had is, you know, there's been lots of of grow up there's you know 8000 grow operations there's even more than there were when i originally wrote that story but you've seen um you've seen raids all across the state over the last year where the cops are coming in and and busting illegal grows people who um maybe they have the proper licensing but they're diverting that product out of the state and into the illicit market. It might be ending up in New York or Washington, D.C., where I am or, you know, wherever. Um, so that's been another big problem with sort of the free market uh, Wild West approach that Oklahoma has taken. But on the other hand, the decidedly unwild West, the heavily regulated states, like look at California. I just read an article the other day about an Oakland dispensary that ha now has three armed guards wearing Kevlar vests, former Army Ranger guys, because they were the subject to um, more than more than a robbery. You know, it seemed like a, a military militarized takedown operation. Um, which isn't to say that, you know, it was necessarily because of the way the state set up those laws, but the fact that you're trying to regulate a once illegal business doesn't take all the illegalities out of, uh, out of the business. Yeah, I mean, California is really the poster child for that. If You know, it's tough to get real specific numbers on the illicit market um, because it's illicit. But I mean, estimates say that it's probably about $8 billion in California, which is really is about twice the, the legal regulated market. Um, so they just have completely failed so far in getting rid of... Um, the illicit market and it's it's undermined the ability to create viable businesses for the people who are trying to play by the rules there's you know high the, the taxes and the regulations business owners will tell you are, are, are onerous and then there's no enforcement so if you know if you're running a illegal weed shop in Los Angeles you know and they shut you down what do you, you get a $500 fine um, and then you pop up three doors down three days later and start doing it again um, so the person who, you know, is paying taxes, is paying the, the, the licensing fees and whatnot, how can they, how can they compete with that? And, you know, especially with, you know, inflation going on, people are price sensitive right now. What would an economist say are the reasons why a place like California or other places that have uh, had disappointing experiences in trying to regulate this, what didn't they anticipate? I, I mean, I think how entrenched the illegal market was there. I mean, if you think about California, um, it's had sort of quasi-legal, um, you know, medical marijuana sales going back to 1996, um, when they really pioneered the medical market. So you had a really, really entrenched marketplace. And in order to get rid of that, you really got to provide uh, economic incentives for people. I mean, people should be motivated to try to have safe regulated products, you would think. I mean, God knows what you're buying in some of these places. God knows what poison is in it. Um, but, you know, that needs to be accompanied by it can't be four times as expensive um, than what you can get at the illegal dispensary. So, you know, the check, the, the, the balance there just hasn't been right. The other thing you see in a lot of states is you have these um, uh, 
certainly well-intentioned programs that are designed to make sure that folks who are disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs are able to benefit from legalization, you know, mainly by getting business licenses. But you see in states like Illinois um, is, is a prime example where those efforts just haven't uh, gone well at all. And what they've ended up doing is resulting in tons of litigation and just a stifling of any businesses getting licensed and the market being a fraction of what it would be if you could, if you, if you could just, you know, let everybody who wants to be an entrepreneur get into business. Mm -hmm. So again, the lack of barriers to entry and uh, Oklahoma's birthing their marijuana business in a libertarian fervor, you know, to some extent that worked out, but you're also, it seems like, uh, I maybe I can infer that Oklahoma having this carceral history, locking up so many people might've also played to their advantage because it's not like California where there really was a robust illegal trade beforehand. Yeah, I will say you are seeing a, a real backlash now, right now in Oklahoma among lawmakers. I mean, when the session opened this year in Oklahoma City, you had literally more than 100 marijuana related bills <laughs> introduced, dozens of them. And many of them are designed at uh, cracking down on on the medical market um like i talked to to one lawmaker out there um who's got a, a two-year moratorium bill that he's introduced that would say you know no more business licenses for two years unless the oklahoma medical marijuana authority says yes we've got our enforcement issues um cleaned up and we could lift this moratorium so there is a backlash and and advocates now are pushing to get a a you know adult use or recreational legalization um you know anyone 21 or older will be able to buy weed on the ballot this year and uh i think there's a lot of concern among those folks that, that that it might not pass right but uh the de facto way that marijuana works in oklahoma is any anyone could get the medical license so basically they'd have to worry or marijuana enthusiasts in oklahoma would have to worry if both the crackdown on the medical side happens and the recreational referendum fails yeah. I mean, the notion that it's a medical market, you're absolutely right, is a joke. There are no qualifying medical conditions. Um, you could stub your toe and that would be sufficient to get a medical marijuana card. Yeah, when you, you could, when uh, you fly you could uh, burn your tongue on a pipe and that would be sufficient to get a medical yes. marijuana card. There's, there's, literally, uh, there's literally billboards all over Oklahoma that say things like, Dr. Feelgood will certify you as a medical marijuana patient. Um, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Is this program actually popular among the rank and file Oklahoman? I mean, I think it's a it's a mixed bag. I mean, yes, you would have to say absolutely it is because 10% of Oklahomans now have medical marijuana cards, almost 400,000 people. So yeah, in the privacy of their own homes, it's certainly popular. Um, and But there's also a backlash, particularly in rural parts of the state um, that have been saturated with marijuana grows. And it's really changed. It's changed the culture. It's changed the landscape in ways that understandably people aren't comfortable with. There's also a... a a, a uncomfortable racial element that's going on there. You've got a lot of um, Asian entrepreneurs who are buying up farms in rural parts of Oklahoma, and that's created some animosity as well. Um, you know, people see, you know, who are these outsiders that are changing um, the nature of, of this, you know, town that we've been in for, you know, who knows, generations. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixed bag, really, in terms of how people feel about it. 
Well, if Oklahoma is indeed Toklahoma, what lessons would that state, should that state give all the others? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the approach has a lot of a lot of merits um, in 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 letting everyone who wants to you know pursue their their business dreams to pursue them. Um, but I think what it what the the downside and what Oklahoma is is learning right now, and I think they really are addressing this, um, is you need to have rules and regulations. It can't just be it just can't be a free for all. You've got to have you know this seed to sale tracking system, which they're in the process of implementing right now. Now, you've got to maybe raise those financial barriers a little bit above that $2,500 um, threshold to make it a little bit harder to get in business so that you've got, you know, folks who actually have a legitimate plan um, to uh, make things work. You've got to have, um, you know, enforcement of, 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 of the rules and make sure that everybody is actually following what they're supposed to be doing. And that hasn't really happened over the last three and a half years. So you've got a new director at the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, Adria Berry, who's been in office since August. And she's getting a lot of high marks from a lot of folks in the industry for really starting to bring some, some, some guardrails to the industry. Paul Demko is the cannabis editor of Politico, where he's been writing extensively about Oklahoma. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you. You're welcome. And now the spiel. This one's going to be a ride. I'm going to start in one place, go in another. It'll be at the end like an Ali Wong stand-up special or memento. It'll all tie together and there might be a little key, a key I'm going to give you that explains it all. So, America roughly divides into two worlds. One is obsessed with Lizzo's hip-hop. The other is obsessed with libs of TikTok. Libs of TikTok, not on TikTok, doesn't really feature libs. I scoured it. Didn't find Michael Dukakis on there anywhere. It's more a leftist sentiment, highly informed by critical studies, gender studies, queer studies, that sort of thing. And it's used as a tool of derision. It provides fodder for Tucker Carlson, whose staff, I guess, is just not up to the challenge. After I talked about the unfair harassment of the Washington Post journalist, Taylor Lorenz, who publicized, I mean, she reported on the name of the woman who runs Libs of TikTok, Libs of TikTok was featured on Tucker's show, the most watched show on cable news for 14 minutes last night. Huge chunk, huge segment. Here's how he starts. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Last year, unbeknownst to pretty much nobody, a woman in Brooklyn started a Twitter account that was comprised almost solely. All right, those are his first words and first mistake. It's, of course, unbeknownst to everybody or beknownst to nobody. You don't really hear the beknownst without the unbeknownst. I tried to listen to a little more. So here you have Taylor Lorenz, who's effectively acting as the Stasi for the deep state, trying to intimidate... Okay, Taylor Lorenz is a journalist who asked the press secretary of the state of Florida for comment and knocked on a door trying to get comment from the woman who runs this highly influential account. Tucker himself bragged about the size of the account, says it has more followers than the state of Wyoming has residents, yet the residents of Wyoming do get to know their governor's name or all their mayor's names, but in case you were concerned about the libs of TikTok's creator's right to anonymity, let me lay this on you. The state of Wyoming has this crazy practice 
possibly a violation of human rights. They dox all of their residents. They put out their name, their phone number, their address. It is this thing called the White Pages. It's obviously distributed by a hate group who doesn't understand that knowing someone's name and address will inevitably lead to violence. This is true. Just ask uh, poor Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor? Yes. Maybe you think Libs of TikTok is unique. Maybe you think it couldn't exist in a time like this. Oh, no. You know, there are century-old scandal sheets highlighting the ridiculous excesses of political enemies of the day. There were mugwumps of the Lyceum. And do you remember the stalwarts of the Chautauqua? The stalwarts, of course, the faction of the Republicans originally loyal to Grant, eventually opposed progressivism. And of course, the Chautauqua, I'll quote from Wikipedia, the Chautauqua was an adult education and social movement in the United States, highly popular in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, right here, I have an old piece of tape, an example of the sort of content that they put out in the stalwarts of the Chautauqua. The Chautauqua circuit, long shrouded in anonymity, has been revealed. It's run by Roy Ellison. Ellison frequently featured the most died in the world of stalwart conservatives, including the Taftians and the Canaanites, like Uncle Joe Cannon, San Francisco Call, Thursday, June 23rd, 1904. Joe Cannon's logic and quaint wit sway vast convention throng. By the way, this is a real article from the uh, San Francisco Call. There was an enthusiastic endorsement of the belligerent attitude of the chairman. The fighting spirit of the delegates was aroused. The gavel wielded by the speaker, more like a bung starter than a parliamentary weapon, was emblematic of the spirit which controlled the convention. Okay, I gotta admit, that's like, uh, what I'm doing is kind of a newsreel voice, which post-dated the 1904 convention we're talking about. But anyway, it's fun to do. It's fun to do what some people call the old-timey voice. I don't like that phrase, old-timey. But this brings up a very important point. A bung starter? Helpfully, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines the bung starter as the wooden mallet used for loosening the bung of a cask. What is that, like the cock of the walk or a tip of the cap? No. Bung of a cast is the plug, the wooden plug that kept a cask as in a cask of whiskey or a keg of beer plugged. So when it was unplugged, the knowledge would flow or the whiskey. Anyway, that's the analogy for this segment. Now you understand. The bung of my cast was TikTok. But the real insight isn't about TikTok or Tucker or Taylor. The insight is that the libs of TikTok story not a fight between the queer and the homophobic, not a fight between tradition and change, not a fight over curricula. It is a lesson in the downside of having maximum insight, maximum insight into your enemy or just your fellow American, this opt-in panopticon that characterizes modern life. If 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, there was a way for everyone else in America to get a glimpse of what was actually going on in the classrooms of the rest of the country, there would be as much chaos as there is today. There might be even more chaos because back then we were further apart on big issues like gay marriage or accepting homosexuality or the agreement of basic historical tenets like rejecting the noble cause narrative of the Civil War. We were far apart. Now we're closer together. But as we become much closer together, we become much, much, much more passionate, hateful over the differences that exist. 
If people back then, wherever the then is, 1970, 60, 22, if people in Berkeley, Cambridge, and Ann Arbor had a whiff of what was being taught in the classrooms of Lafayette, Lubbock, or Lynchburg, they wouldn't be happy. And if you reverse those cities, the Lafayette and Lubbock residents would be less happy still. If back then a preschool lesson going on in a progressive Montessori school in Manhattan could be glimpsed by the residents of the Florida Panhandle, heads would have exploded, plugs would have become unbunged, or bungs would have become unplugged. We educate our children differently in America, and we do so roughly according to the values of communities. Education is the most local form of government and the most important to people and the most pervasive. A virtual back-to-school night held across vast differences with people who didn't share your culture and values, that's never going to play well. And that's what not libs of TikTok is doing, that's what TikTok is doing. Teachers are volunteering to share with Probably they think they're a couple of dozen followers, but in reality, share with the whole world what their educational philosophy is. And that was never going to go over well. How much of what goes on in a school is just the cool teacher turning around the chair and wanting to have a rap session? None. That's not cool. Never really was. But how much of it is a teacher who knows his or her class, his or her community, talking in a way that appeals to that community? It's just an adaptive behavior to get along as a teacher in your profession. Good teachers know how to do this, and they wouldn't hold forth in the same manner had the parents in class on back-to-school night have been bussed in from four states over. These days, young, non-binary preschool teachers are proudly identifying as such on TikTok, and I bet that that is absolutely no problem for the vast majority of the schools in which they teach. The principals of those schools know who their teachers are and, for the most part, support their teachers. The parents do, too. That's why the libs of TikTok is dishonest when they say they're indoctrinating your children. No, they're indoctrinating their children. And education, indoctrination, it's kind of subjective. All in the little red book of the beholder. So the idea, I don't want my children to be exposed to this, that is a call to arms. The idea that I don't want other people's children to be exposed to philosophies and worldviews that they want their children to be exposed to, that's not terribly compelling. And it's especially less compelling if you call yourself a parent's rights activist and have any level of intellectual consistency. At any time, knowledge of our fellow Americans' specific ways of imparting knowledge would offend. But now the technology brings us the lesson plans, plus the norms of privacy versus performance that have changed as shaped by our tools. This will inevitably lead to conflict, to ratings for Tucker Carlson, to angst for Taylor Lorenz. But for young parents, it's all a convenient consumer experience where they could pick which non-binary preschool teacher will best impart the values they want their children exposed to. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pasco runs the Peachfish Productions Foundation and does so unbeknownst to none and with charity towards some. The Gist is produced in conjunction with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depru and thanks for listening.